So there's a story told about this elder. I think Pastor John told this story before, but I'm not sure. About an elderly lady who was really well known for her, her faith and for her joy in the Lord uh, and for her boldness in talking about it. And this lady would go out on her front porch every morning uh, and just shout, praise the Lord. But unfortunately, right next to her lived a, a, a grumpy old man who was an atheist. And uh, he would get so angry and so aggravated at her proclamations that he would go out right after her and shout, Hey, lady, there ain't no Lord. And, and this went on for years and years. With the lady's faith growing and growing and the man's anger just getting deeper and more resentful and Eventually, time went by and, and hard times set in on the elderly lady, uh, and she decided that she was going to pray to God for some help. So she went out on the porch like she normally did and shouted, praise the Lord. Uh, but then she said, but God, I need some food. I'm, I'm having a rough time. Lord, would you please send me some groceries? And the next morning, the lady went out on her porch, and immediately she saw this large bag of groceries sitting there, and she started praising and saying, praise the Lord. But just then as she did that, the old man jumped out from behind a bush and said, aha, I told you there ain't no Lord. I bought those groceries, not God. <laughs> and so the lady got even more excited. He was confused to see that. She just kept saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Not only did he send me groceries, but he got the devil to pay for him. <laughs> <laughs> you, you told that story, didn't you, John? Yeah, I think that's where I stole it from. <laughs> but it didn't do a whole lot to curb that old man's anger, did it? But, you know, the fact is, uh, the truth is that young or old, rich or poor, or even believer uh, or unbeliever, we all struggle to some degree or another with anger. And that's really what this next psalm in our series is about. In fact, as I was telling the kids, as part of a category that I guess you really could call the angry psalms. It's what uh, theologians call them, the imprecatory psalms. Uh, and an imprecation is just a fancy word uh, for something we say to people when we get angry. It's a, uh, in today's case, it's a request, uh, a prayer really for God to bring down harm or, or injury or in some cases even, even death. Uh, on another person and, and counting this particular one counting psalm 35 there are 14 of them that we're going to be looking at as we continue through this book of psalms uh, so we're going to have several chances to uh, wrestle with those kind of ideas together uh, but i guess the best way to start them out is just to jump in and read this one and then we'll kind of start unpacking it okay so this is psalm 35 a psalm of david and david writes oh lord oppose those who oppose me Fight those who fight against me. Put on your armor. Take up your shield. Prepare for battle and come to my aid. Lift up your spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Let me hear you say, I am your salvation. Bring shame and disgrace to those trying to kill me. Turn them back and humiliate those who want to harm me. Blow them away like chaff in the wind, a wind sent by the angel of the Lord. Make their path dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. I did them no wrong, but they laid a trap for me. I did them no wrong, but they dug a pit to catch me. So let sudden ruin come upon them. Let them be caught in the trap they set for me. 
Let them be destroyed in the pit they dug for me. Then I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be glad because he rescues me. With every bone in my body, I will praise him. Lord, who can compare with you? Who else rescues the helpless from the strong? Who else protects the poor from those who rob them? Malicious witnesses testify against me. They accuse me of crimes I know nothing about. They repay me evil for good. I'm sick with despair, yet when they were ill, I grieved for them. I denied myself by fasting for them, but my prayers returned unanswered. I was sad as though they were my friends or family, as if I were grieving for my own mother. They are glad now that I'm in trouble. They gleefully join together against me. I am attacked by people I don't even know. They slander me constantly. They mock me, call me names. They snarl at me. How long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Rescue me from their fierce attacks. Protect my life from these lions. And then I will thank you in front of the great assembly. I will praise you before all the people. Don't let my treacherous enemies rejoice over my defeat. Don't let those who hate me without cause gloat over my sorrow. They don't talk of peace. They plot against innocent people who mind their own business. They shout, aha, aha, with our own eyes we saw him do it. O Lord, you know all about this. Do not stay silent. Do not abandon me now, O Lord. Wake up. Rise to my defense. Take up my cause, my Lord and my God. Declare me not guilty, O Lord, my God, for you give justice. Don't let my enemies laugh about me and my troubles. Don't let them say, look, we got what we wanted. Now we'll eat him alive. May those who rejoice at my troubles be humiliated and disgraced. May those who triumph over me be covered with shame and dishonored. But give great joy to those who came to my defense. Let them continually say, great is the Lord who delights in blessing his servants with peace. And then I will proclaim your justice and I will praise you all day long. Amen. So we started out by saying that we all, uh, me included, struggle with, uh, at some degree or other, with anger. And I know that that doesn't surprise you because apparently America has a problem handling its anger. Uh, Jeffrey uh, Kruger, who's editor-at-large of Time Magazine, wrote uh, an article recently, and and he said, "Uh, the easiest thing you'll do all day is get ticked off at something. He said, someone cuts you off in traffic, ticked off. Someone doesn't hold the elevator door, ticked off. The guy in front of you at Starbucks needs his entire order remade because his mocha half-cap double frap has the wrong number of espresso shots in it. Even though you know full well nobody can taste the difference. Ticked off. And he continues, he said, we're all that way. He writes, we have vegans now who are outraged that the owners of a chain of plant-based restaurants have admitted to eating meat on their own farm, on their own time. So there's dancers that are outraged about a clothing ad in which an actor who portrays a dancer wasn't really a dancer. He says, which I guess makes it the first ad in history that wasn't 100% honest. (laughs) He said, there are gardeners outraged and fishermen outraged, and yes, even knitters outraged. Knitters outraged. Apparently, it's something about the U.S. Olympic Committee not letting them use the term knitters Olympics. 
And then then he says kind of parenthetically, but these people do have needles, so in this case, perhaps we should listen to them. And, And the article concludes like this. He said, but my point is, he says, that outrage and anger is a problem. It's addictive. It's quick. It's binary. It's delicious. And more and more, we are gorging on it. And you know, that would have been an easy trap for David to fall into, wouldn't it? And for him to become angry and violent. In fact, some commentators link this psalm uh, to the time in 1 Samuel 24 when Saul and an army of about 3,000 men are chasing after David in the wilderness of En Gedi to kill him. So you guys can go home and read that for homework today, right? See everybody writing it down, 1 Samuel 24. And when you read that, you'll see that time after time, though, in spite of that, David took the high ground. He took the harder path. He took the path of mercy and of peace. And instead of lashing out, he just looked up. He looked up to where his help comes from. And we can see that right from the outset because the first three verses of this psalm really set the tone for how David is going to pray for deliverance. The first verse makes his plea and it kind of brings this argument in legal terms because David calls for the Lord to contend with those who contend against him. And the word contend here is just used in the context of a defense attorney. Uh, It's one who's called in to argue a case on behalf of another. That's actually exactly what David said to King Saul in 1 Samuel that you're going to read later today. Uh, He says uh, to King Saul in verse 15, May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. But you know, David also takes a military angle in verses 2 and 3. He says, he calls on the Lord to go to battle for him and to fight for him against his pursuers. And he uses this really great vivid imagery. David said, put on your armor, take up your shield, lift up your spear and your javelin. You know, we don't often think of, of God having armor, but metaphorically he does. Isaiah fifty nine seventeen says of the Lord, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And now we know obviously shields and armor are primarily defensive, but David also calls on God to go on the offense for him. And so in these verses, this is the kind of the dual idea of David finding protection behind God's shield and at the same time asking God to keep his enemies at a distance with his spear. In fact, one 18th century commentator said on this passage, uh, it's a picture of the armed Jehovah who is grasping shield and drawing spear, but he utters no battle cry. Instead, he whispers consolation to the trembling man crouching behind his shield. And then he says, while the outward side of God's divine activity is turned toward his foe, is martial, And menacing the inner side is full of tender breathings of comfort and love. I love that picture. And David pleads, Lord, let me hear you say, I am your salvation. I am your salvation. To which Charles Spurgeon adds in his commentary, he said, Brothers, there's nothing that can make you strong to labor for God, bold to fight against your enemies, and mighty to resist your temptation like a full assurance that God is your God and your salvation. And, you know, that's really the, the point that those harsh imprecatory prayers that David was making was getting at. It's not coming from a place of anger. 
It was coming from a place of hope and a place of trust. See, his statements are, are not about words of personal revenge, but expressions of zeal for the glory and for the kingdom of God to prevail. And David's not asking that God would put his enemies into his personal control or into his particular power, but for God to be the one to take the lead, for God to be the one to hold the reins of justice, for God to take up the charge against his enemies who ultimately haven't really sinned against David, they've sinned against the Lord. And so he's essentially praying, defeat them, Lord, so that these people will come to an end of themselves, that they'll come to an end of their wrong-headed ideas and they will come to a place of repentance, a place where they can finally see that this is your world, God. And, you know, I think this is really the kind of place where we see why David was called a man after God's own heart because uh, that's a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? It's a hard prayer to pray. That God would take our adversaries, would take our enemies, real and imagined, uh, into his hands instead of hoping that they would fall into ours. Right? It's scary to think what we might inflict on our enemies if we had it within our power. Uh, or of what pain we might be tempted to visit on those who have viciously persecuted us. Or, or what humiliation we might wish to heap on those we feel have hurt us if we could. Uh, or sadly, even what preemptive strike we might take if we knew what our enemies had in mind to do to us. But you know, David didn't pray any of that. He just said, Lord, please don't let my treacherous enemies rejoice over my defeat. Don't let those who hate me without cause gloat over my sorrow. That should be enough for us, right? It's actually the same message that a descendant of David would echo 28 generations later as he sat with a group of men around a crowded supper table in a borrowed upper room. As he sat side by side with men who had pledged to live and to die with and for him, knowing full well that even as they sat there, one of those men would betray him, knowing that another one would swear that he'd never even met him. And the rest of them, well, they would just simply abandon him. He sat there knowing that within less than 24 hours, he would be crucified and dead. And with all of that weighing on his mind, our Lord Jesus looked around the table and he said to his men, whoever hates me hates my father also. He said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The word that's written in their law, and now he's going to quote for us Psalm 35, 19 today. The word for us written in their law must be fulfilled that they hated me without cause. Now, of course, the disciples didn't understand at that moment exactly what Jesus was talking about. But they knew that psalm. They knew our Psalm 35 for today that he had quoted. And they would have known how God had rescued Jesus' ancestor David and and I'm sure they were trying to kind of piece all of that together in their minds, all that the Lord was trying to communicate to them as he was speaking at the Last Supper. Uh, and then he, he finishes this little sermonette a chapter and a half later. Jesus draws it to a close with a prayer, uh, a really unusual prayer. He says in uh, verse 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father... The hour has come, glorify your, your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. <coughs> Excuse me. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And you know when he prayed that? Peter and James and John must have, have immediately have had their attentions arrested because it hadn't been too long ago that Jesus, as he was explaining to his followers more closely that he would have to suffer and be arrested and be killed, that he pulled those three men aside and he went kind of on a little short retreat. He went on a, a private little hike into the highlands because the Bible records in Matthew 17 that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, when you're, we're looking at this, undoubtedly the, the purpose of Jesus' prayer to resume his glory and, and of this transfiguration he did in front of his disciples, at least in part showing his heavenly glory, was so that his inner circle of disciples would gain a greater understanding of who Jesus was, that Jesus was and is God. And because Jesus is God, he has unlimited power. And his men knew that. So how much more must that knowledge have meant when they saw Jesus keep that power in restraint, when they saw him submit himself into the hands of sinful men, how much more must they have marveled at the love of Christ for his people when they thought about the magnitude of his glory and of his greatness, but seeing him in meekness, giving himself into the hands of sinful men. Uh, and seeing during his trial and while he was on the cross, uh, they caused him to endure such intense anger and false accusations, and such unmerited punishment, and betrayal, and abandonment, and pain. Uh, and those words really just touching the surface of what Jesus underwent, and yet in spite of all of that, he restrained himself. He, he held back from using his power to end his ordeal, or to retaliate against his enemies. You know, Jesus could have smote anyone or anything that came against him, or anyone that mocked him, or criticized him, or caused him pain. He could have received the instant help of 10,000 angels to back him up, but he didn't. He just looked out in compassion and forgiveness and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I don't know about you, but when I think uh, about all of those things together, it makes me want to ask, how could he do that? How could he just let unjust men spit on him and punch him and, and beat him and put him on a cross and put nails through his holy hands, hands that had never done anything but help and heal and hand out food to the needy and touch the outcast with hope. Uh, and the only thing, at least in written form, that really kind of helps me 
wrap my mind around it is a short little description uh, written by 18th century pastor and theologian James Stewart who uh, said of kind of these disparate elements of our Lord Jesus uh, that he was the meekest and lowliest of men yet he spoke with coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him and little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our self-styled realists soundly beat. He was the servant of all, washing his disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last he did not save himself. And he ends by saying, there's nothing in history like the union of contrast which confronts us in the Gospels because the mystery of Jesus Christ is the mystery of his divine personality. It's that divine character of Jesus where we find the one that mysteriously brings together all of God's attributes, that God is both holy and loving, that he's righteous and merciful, that he's completely just and wholly compassionate. And so I have to ask myself, if I'm going to follow a man like that, what does it mean for my life today? Uh, right now, this, this week. Uh, and I think, you know, just for a few things, a few bullet points, one of them means maybe when we turn on the news, we should react with concern, but not with fear and consternation. Maybe it means that I react to uh, sinful neighbors with compassion and not hostility because I'm a sinner too. Maybe it means I endure unjust suffering with complete calm and not with clenched fists. And, and it means that I live a life relentlessly pursuing authentic joy and not temporary contentment so that with a, a clear head I can listen for that still small voice of the Lord saying to us as he did to David I am your salvation and we can pray in the words of Psalm 35 today great is the Lord who delights in blessing his servants with peace the kind of peace that he offers at this table this table that represents our Lord's sacrifice in exhausting the wrath and the anger of God uh, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. Will you pray with me?